Hey everyone, welcome to Brown Breakdown. I'm your host, Apoorva Gandetti. Every episode, I get to sit down with South Asian artists of all types at all different levels of their careers to understand the tools necessary to build a life as an artist. We'll be talking about everything from turning a hobby into a career, obstacles along the way, breaking tired stereotypes, and changing the media landscape to be more inclusive. My guest today is Anu Bhatt. Anu is an actor, dancer, and writer. Her autobiographical one-woman show, Hollow Wave, premiered at Chicago's Silk Road Rising in 2018, followed by a 2019 off-Broadway production at the United Solo Theater Festival. Anu received her BA in linguistics from UC Berkeley and her MFA in acting from Roosevelt University in Chicago. Her Chicago theater credits include North Light Theater, Lifeline Theater, Timeline Theater, Steppenwolf, and Chicago Shakespeare, among others. Her TV credits include Chicago Fire and Chicago Med on NBC and Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams on Amazon. Currently, Anu is back home in San Diego teaching English and French online and struggling to learn Korean. She continues to write about the South Asian American experience and just released her first short film called Autocorrect. Hi, Anu. Welcome to Brown Breakdown. Hi, Apoorva. It's very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. It's so, uh, I feel like it's very serendipitous how we met because I feel like, you know, we met through the South Asian Film Festival and usually when things are in person, uh, it makes a lot more sense when you meet people at film festivals, but we sort of connected online during the festival, yeah. which was really fun. It's a virtual world these days now. Yeah. Have you ever been to the festival in person? Uh, yes. I, I was actually at the South Asian Film Festival in 2019 for the screening of Code Switched. Awesome. I just interviewed Karen. So lots of information about Code Switch there. It's an amazing series and just highlights so many awesome Chicago actors, South Asian Chicago actors, including yourself. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I was really excited to be part of it. It's a great story and Karen has done some really amazing work. Yeah. So I'd love to learn more about your background, you know, where you grew up and just how you got involved in performance and acting. Yeah. I grew up in San Diego, where I am now. And I I, I guess you could say I got involved in performance because I started with Paradzanatyam when I was about five. So that performance aspect was was dancing on stage. In terms of acting, I was always a kid that loved to you know, uh, play around and ham it up. And since we grew up with Bollywood movies, I think I really enjoyed playing that famous actress in, in at home or something like that with my sister. But I started acting in middle school and in high school in kind of the, the high school or middle school plays. And then I, I didn't really do much acting professionally until I got to Chicago which was much later. Awesome. And I know Bart Natyam has been a big part of your life. It was featured a lot in your uh, show, Hollow Wave. So your family is Bengali, right? Actually, so my mom is Bengali and my dad okay. is Gujarati. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. I I was wondering if there was any reason why you decided to do Bart Natyam instead of something like Kathak. Well, because, I mean, honestly, a lot of the, I mean, I grew up with the Bengali and Gujarati community in San Diego, but a lot of the Gujarati community takes Bharatanatyam. And uh, in my experience, at least in California, a lot of, a lot of, I guess, North Indian girls are still learning Bharatanatyam. I mean, there is yeah, Kathak yeah. too, but it, it definitely wasn't as common when I was growing up. Um, I'm not sure if that's a location-based thing or just a, I don't know what it is, but yeah, it was mostly Bharatanatyam. 
Yeah, did you have an Aaron Gaithram and everything? No, I'm one of the people that didn't actually. Uh, my sister and I were supposed to have one. Basically, my sister and I were finishing up high school. My sister was going off to college. I was supposed to have it with her, but things didn't end up working out that way. And to be honest, in retrospect, I don't think an Aaron Gaithram really defines the the culmination of of learning because you can you you are always going to be learning as you as you grow. So no, I never did. I'm one of those. <laughs> unfinished dancers, I guess you could say. Quote unquote unfinished. Quote unquote, yeah. Let's let's say that. But I've I've been happy to use dance in in a lot of different ways, I guess unconventionally in terms of acting and, and incorporating it into my later life. How were you able to keep dancing as an adult? I feel like that once you leave like the structure of high school or a dance team in college, it's really hard to find those spaces to continue dancing. How did you do that? Well, I got lucky because, I mean, I didn't dance for a while. Between college and, yeah, really from college to the end of grad school, which is a span of about five years, I didn't uh, do any dancing except maybe the one-off kind of performance I might have done for my for my grad classmates or something like that. I But I got lucky in the sense that one of the first productions I did in Chicago after finishing my grad program was kind of a uh, devised work that involved a lot of dance groups. And I met up with some other South Asian uh, women who were dancing. And so I kind of was reintroduced to the dance world from there. And then from 2013 to probably about 2017, 2018, I was able to continue to dance with these people, which was really nice to, to reconnect with that world. That's awesome. I uh, I did Bhangra in college and I love doing it in college. But as to continue as an adult, it's like an even bigger time commitment because the teams just become more advanced and it's harder to it's harder to find. So I'm really glad you were able to like find that in some way in your life. I, I was also happy to be able to find people who were kind of innovative in the way that they were interpreting dance and that they were creating their own companies or they were coming up with new pieces. So it was really, it was a really interesting time because it was creative, but it was also reconnecting the the traditional with the new. In college, you went to Berkeley for linguistics. Yes, I did. Okay. So when, how did you make that shift from, you know, this like academic background, going to Berkeley and make that pivot into acting? It was not something that I had planned. I had thought that I was going to go into translation when I graduated. I wanted to do wow. the Peace Corps. I wanted to be part of the foreign service. I, 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 I spoke French. Uh, that was my minor in, at Berkeley and I had studied abroad. And so I thought that that was kind of going to be my path going forward. But I found that I didn't really want to speak languages academically, if that makes sense. I've always been more of the person who really wants to connect with people and speak languages in a conversational way. And as I, you know, I came back home after college and I worked for a couple years trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And the acting path kind of came around because I realized I didn't want to do a master's in in French or something going forward that would kind of be more research-based. I wanted to do something mm-hmm. more active. And I kind of on a whim decided to go for the master's in fine arts acting auditions. And by some miracle, I got into a program. I say by some miracle because... I really didn't have much training. I, I mean, was I just had... going to say, yeah, like there, I mean, MFA programs are really hard to get into. So that's incredible. <laughs> tough. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the universe had in plan for me. But yeah, I, I ended up getting into a program in Chicago. And, and that kind of sealed the deal for me. I said, Okay, great. That's my path. I'm going to go there. I had gotten into some other programs. One was in London and one was in New York. But Again, the financial part of it is really important for an MFA program and the the money and the 
availability was really in Chicago. So that's just kind of what took me to Chicago. Wow. London would be amazing. I grew up uh, in Oxford in London and I've always like kind of wanted to I didn't tell you I was born in London? You were? No, you I, didn't. Oh my gosh. Okay. Wait, so I was born it. in, I was born in Ilford and, and on, some of my family still lives there, but I, I mean, a lot of my extended family, if, I mean, I'm sure you, you're familiar with the, the Gujarati uh, diaspora, you know, kind of the moving to Africa and then coming to London. My, my dad was part of that diaspora. So my dad's family ended up in London for a long time and I was born there, but I was only there for a year before we moved to California. So I can't really say that I remember anything. Oh, okay, cool. I always love finding out when other people like lived there or lived in other places because it just, that kinship is awesome. Oh my gosh. What what brought you (laughs) to the US then? My dad's job. So we ended up coming here and to Chicago. So I've been living okay, here for a while. Wow, that's awesome. Speaking about your MFA, was there any like a friend who was also applying to MFA programs or any teacher that was sort of helping you through that process? Or was it purely like you just went online, looked it up and just did the whole process on your own? <laughs> I can't say I did it on my own because it always it, it's always people who helped me get there. Uh, there were there were individuals who helped me. I would say that some of my work colleagues at the time, I was working in a, I was working several freelance jobs, but one of the jobs that I was working was with a company where I was essentially teaching theater to kids and uh, oh. French theater to kids, or basically a theater class in French to kids. And my one of my bosses helped me to prepare some monologues, which was really helpful. And then I was taking some of the kind of the basic theater training I had I had from college, even though that was just one or one or two classes. And so, yeah, I mean, people definitely watched my stuff, gave me feedback, kind of helped me through it. So there I I don't think I would have done well at all if it hadn't been for their help. Yeah, I mean, you always have to have someone to just, you know, help along and just some a vote of confidence from someone, too, I feel like can go such a long way. And so the MFA brought you to Chicago. So what were those first couple of years like while you were doing the program? Were you able to, were you like all of your time was dedicated to the MFA or were you able to also look into work in Chicago while you were there? During the year, it was really intense and I wasn't able to do much. I was only doing whatever plays we were working on in the program. But in the summer, I think I stayed there in the summer and that's kind of when I started working outside of the program. So I was able to do that pretty much every summer until I graduated. And I think in my last year or something, I might have been working, I I don't quite remember, but I might have been working outside of the program at that point, because I think I got a like an ensemble part at Chicago Shakespeare, towards the end of my grad school. So that was like a partnership with the program. Otherwise, it was individual companies. But to your question about what it was like, and this relates to Hollow Wave, it was incredibly tough for many reasons. One, because I was a complete newbie coming into the theater world, and it was a conservatory at that. So it was very, very intense hours, 8 a.m. to probably 10 or 11 at night based on if you had rehearsals after. And I was very excited about that because I love that kind of structure and intensity. But it really gets to you when it's every single day and you're in a windowless room with people who you don't really know. And you're in a new city and you're with a roommate off of Craigslist. And (laughs) I mean, everything sort of compiled. So I actually had a really hard time for the first couple years of living in Chicago. Do you feel like the program at that time catered to what you were hoping to find in terms of roles that you wanted to do? Or did you feel like there wasn't a lot of conversation about, you know, people of color in the industry? That's a great question because 
the answer is no, basically. There wasn't much conversation at the time because this was before 2015 when things really started moving in terms of, at least in Chicago theater, the conversation about diversity and inclusion. So 2015 was really kind of that landmark year that things started really opening up, I think, in terms of more, I guess, open conversations. And I graduated in 2013. So that conversation hadn't really happened yet. The program itself, unfortunately, did not cater to, I wouldn't even say it was just for people of color. I would say for anybody who was a minority, I don't think the program really gave proper yeah. attention to the kind of inclusivity work that you have to do to make people feel welcome. Because we had, for example, certain professors who were very entrenched in tradition, and that tradition was very, very white-based. And as a result, there wasn't much room for questioning. The culture of not questioning when you're supposed to be a, an actor learning to explore and ask yourself questions, it just clashes. Not every teacher was like that. For people who are listening who are from CCPA, I think you'll be very clear about who I'm talking about, one or two people in particular. The rest of the teachers were, were very wonderful, but unfortunately, some of these teachers were people we had consistently throughout the program who were one of the core, you know, one or two of the core teachers. And I felt, and again, this is really only in retrospect because I didn't even have the education to realize this was happening. I felt really suppressed the whole time. I was also the only person of color in the grad program, one of the few people of color in the entire school. Yeah, the culture really didn't cater to it. Again, it was a lot of factors compounding on each other. The, the master's program was being cut off after my, after my class. We were the last class and we were told in the first year out of three that they were gonna end the program. And so the whole culture, I felt the whole vibe throughout the three years was just kind of the admin, not really wanting to deal with our class because they had a bigger fish to fry or they had bigger issues to deal with. Yeah, that sounds kind of damning when I say it, but that's, that's really kind of the way it was. And that's how I felt. I think the really insidious nature of being in a program like that before these kinds of conversations happen is that you don't even know that this is happening to you until you look back several years later and think, oh my gosh, that happened to me. I had Right. A lot of, I wouldn't even say microaggressions, I would say a couple of moments of real aggressive racism that were targeted towards me based on just me being myself or me being, you know, a little bit assertive or something like that. And like you said, when those conversations aren't happening, it's difficult on our end to even have the tools to know like how to address them or even recognize that they're happening. Because I feel like for me, there's a lot of situations that I look back on around that time when I was in high school that I just think about that I just decided it wasn't a racist comment or something. And I just really thought like, oh, there's something wrong with me as a person. And that becomes very difficult to move past because we just don't have, I mean, personally, I didn't have the tools to deal with it. And I think what you're talking about is part of a bigger issue where I believe, and I don't know if you, you know, if, if this resonates with you, Apurva, but this what I've been noticing about South Asian cultural mindset is a lot of I am the problem in this bigger picture. Yes. And we internalize it a lot. And that's, I mean, generations of internalized racism after, mm -hmm. you know, colonialism. And even though we grew up in the U.S. and we didn't experience that directly, it is passed down through generations. It's not just through the stories, but in our mindset. And I notice that in my own behavior in that sometimes I do the same thing where I say, well, maybe I did something wrong. But at the same time, what if they did something wrong, you know? <laughs> what right. if it's not me at all? But the problem is there are a <laughs> yeah. few people who are willing to, 
I would say institutions, there are fewer white based institutions who are willing to really admit that they have failed. And that conversation is so, so difficult to have that there's just a sense of denial. And then, then, then the person just takes it on themselves. Yeah, this brings me into so many questions that I have about autocorrect, but I want to wait to get there. Once you graduated, did you feel like your MFA gave you the tools to build a life as a working actor in Chicago? Or is that something like a whole new stage that you had to figure out of, okay, like, how do I get an agent? How do I go out for plays and all of that? I would say CCPA did prepare me for that. And that's, you well, know, that's great. kudos to them in the sense that they had not only did they have a showcase at the end where they invited agents to come in, see you, which was one of the biggest reasons why I went out for this MFA program, because it had that kind of structure. But also we had business classes in the MFA program that were offered to us where we did have my, my teacher at the time, Jane Alderman, who is now passed. She was so helpful in bringing in people in the business, casting agents, directors, basically people from every avenue who would come and talk to us about it. So there was, there was help that way. The one thing I would say that the program didn't prepare me for was the mindset of being an actor, which I don't think many actors get prepared for the mindset. And what I'm talking about really is really having to trust your own voice. I, I was told, now this is what I internalized. Some people might say, I didn't say that at all. And maybe that's true. But this is what I took from my program. You are trying to get your foot in the door. So you have to say yes to things. And of course, that makes sense. You're a new actor. You want to say yes. It's not like I'm going to put a boundary and say, I'm not going to go out for anything. I'm not that kind of actor. But over the years, when I felt like I was going out for anything and everything, and I didn't really feel like I really had the agency to say this, I don't like this project, or I don't really want to do that project. But again, that reminder, well, you got to get your foot in the door, you got to get your foot in the door. It makes me feel as an actor, a lack of agency. And that sort of lack of agency just kind of expounded upon itself. And I'm sure that people who are listening to this will resonate. Well, it, it'll, this will resonate with them because yeah, absolutely. that lack of agency is a really big problem for actors. And I think, again, on top of that, we're going back to the South Asian mindset where I was always taught to achieve and be the, the best possible version of myself. But as a result, that, that comes with not really being able to say no to things because you never really know what you're going to miss out on. So it's a lot of FOMO. It's a lot of scarcity mindset. But that really takes a toll on your mental health because you're never really giving yourself the time to be a fully fledged person that has a life outside of acting. And you're always trying to go and make something out of acting, make something out of acting. And when you really don't have that much control over the situation, you you are at the bottom of the food chain and there's a you know, there's a talent agent, then there's a casting director, then there's a director, then there's a producer. All of these people are making decisions that you cannot control. But if you're telling yourself, I got to make something out of this, you're, you're really straining every single time to make something happen. And it, it just created for me a sense of anxiety, a lot of anxiety mm -hmm. every single time. So I think that that's what I wasn't prepared for as an actor. How did you start to find that agency? And were there specific moments where you felt like you finally had a grasp of that, like you were able to turn down a project that you weren't interested in? I, for my own reasons, I think based on my own experiences in childhood, have become somebody who really wants to not regret my choices in life. So I have become what I would say is somebody who maybe is the first person to say no to something. And let me, let me explain a little what I mean. The way I started getting agency is really talking to other people who are going through similar things. 
the culture at that time was changing. So basically 2013 to 2015, maybe this was building up. 2015, we started having conversations about diversity and inclusion. I felt like I benefited from those conversations because again, it's giving actors agency to say, this is wrong, we need to change. So based on those conversations that I was having with other actors, people who felt similarly to me, I felt, well, let me start writing my own stuff. We're not seeing stories about South Asians you know, in Chicago theater, let me start writing my own thing. And I have always felt more comfortable, I guess, ironically, for a lot of people sharing my own story than trying to fit myself in somebody else's box. When I talk about, you know, the person who is the first person to say no, what I mean is, I find myself more and more a leader, the more that I acknowledge that I have the right to say no to something, it sort of inspires me to create boundaries and say, this is not right. And I've been inspired by other people, but I've also felt like I can become a model for, for people coming after me. For example, when I, after I had conversations with people who said, look, I'm not getting paid enough. And you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't say yes to a stipend of $150 for six weeks of work. The next time that email came around asking, then I would feel comfortable saying, sorry, no, I, I don't, I can't be available for that. And that culture was changing at the same time. So I, I mean, it wasn't just me. I was inspired by everybody else around me, but I felt empowered based on the change that was happening in the culture to sort of, I guess, connect to myself a little bit more. Oh, you're speaking right to me. I feel like I totally feel the same way about I feel more comfortable sharing my life and my story than than trying to make myself fit into a role that doesn't make sense. And I feel like there's so much agency that comes from just making your own work. And I've enjoyed so much talking to so many artists who are South Asian. And I feel like there is, I've never talked to a South Asian actor who's only an actor. Like everyone is always doing other things, making their own stuff. And some of that I feel like is necessity, but it is also what you said about finding that agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think anybody these days is able to just be one thing, unless maybe you're the one person of actors. I'm not sure, but I think yeah. in this world, we are always multi-hyphenate. And that's a good thing because it's good to know different aspects of the industry as well. I mean, even when you make a self-tape, you're not even just an actor anymore. You're your editor, you're your director. Oh my gosh, it's so much work. <laughs> it's so much it's work. It's really I can, a lot of we work. We need to have another pod podcast about self-tape horror stories because I have at least three <laughs> horrible oh self-tape stories that will... Can you share your top one? I will share my top one. Yes, I was in... <laughs> I was in Paris. I was in Paris oh. visiting a friend. And I got a self-tape request for a callback. I rented an Airbnb that was terrible. I mean, it was sparse. It didn't have the proper lighting. But there was no space in my friend's apartment. Actually, no, it wasn't even that. So my friend didn't live in Paris anymore. She was working down south. She had come up to visit me. And we were both staying with one of her friends. So we couldn't tape at her friend's place. So I had to, <laughs> I had to rent an Airbnb. This was from probably 5 or 6 p.m. at night to midnight. I was trying to tape. I'm trying to WhatsApp a friend in Chicago who is working in a cafe at the time. So she's trying to read with me with the noise in the background. Then she comes outside because it's that loud in the cafe. So now she's on the street in Chicago with the traffic going by trying to be my reader. Bless her. Because she was, try she was working so hard and I felt so bad because my connection kept cutting off. <laughs> So I was using oh, all the data. No. I was like racking up the data charges because I was trying to run my laptop and my phone at the same time. The Wi-Fi didn't work in the apartment and the lighting was terrible. So basically it took me more probably 
three times as long as it should have just to tape something and send it off. And then I didn't get it. <laughs> oh, no. As you were talking about the story, I was just racking up in my head the cost of trying to make that self-tape. Like, okay, like $100 on the Airbnb, a couple, you know, another 100 on data or something. It's just like all of that sunken into the self-tape. Yep. Wow. You talked about a little bit about like the importance of finding that agency and that mentality. When it came to going out and going after theater roles and, you know, trying to get on camera work, how did you just figure that all out? The theater world was a little easier to navigate for me because I, there were some theater auditions that I got on my own based on my mm -hmm. own kind of connections. So that wasn't as challenging to navigate, but the majority, I mean, I would say 90% of the work that I was doing probably between 2013 and 2017 was through an agent. Um, sometimes I got an offer separately, but then I might have tied in my agent to sort of help me navigate the, the contract issues. There, there are pluses and minuses to the on-camera world with, with agents in the sense that the, the pluses are that having an agent is great in that they help negotiate your salary, or your rate rather, they can help to mediate any sort of issues that you might come across. And the, the minuses though, are that the on-camera world really only goes through agents. So to get those TV mm -hmm. shows, Chicago Med, Chicago Fire, all everything that's going on in Chicago at the time, you, you need to have an agent. And that's tough for the many, many actors in Chicago who are very talented, who want to work on camera, who are practicing, who are, who are honing their skills and yet cannot get access to those auditions even because they're not listed because they're through an agent. Mm -hmm. So it's it's dicey, you know, it's 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 not fair. It's not equal. It's not balanced in that way. I'll admit that. The theater world I think is a little more open in the sense that there are so many non-equity theaters and so many storefront theaters in Chicago that uh, there are there's plenty of theater work. Uh, doesn't say that you're going to get paid that much, but there's plenty of theater work that you can find without an agent and you can do without an agent. I also noticed that you had spent a lot of time doing Shakespeare and more like canon classical theater work. I I found that so interesting to learn because for me, um, when I was in acting school, I found those texts to be the most difficult for me. And I brushed them aside to an extent because I was just, you know, especially with canon, I was playing these women that I was just like, I have no connection to you. And, you know, I know it's my job as an actor to find that connection. But in my head, I was just so aware of the fact that the person who wrote this text probably didn't see who I am as a South Asian woman as like a complete human being. And I couldn't get past that. Mm -hmm. So for you, when you approach those kinds of texts, how do you find your way into them? Yeah, that's a great question. Because what, what you're asking and what you're talking about is something that I know a lot of BIPOC artists have faced. And mm -hmm. the, I think the really unfortunate stereotype, I guess, for lack of a better word, we, we would say with Shakespeare is that not a lot of artists of color, it's not even that they have access to it, but that they aren't educated about Shakespeare. Now, I think there's a there's a bigger debate we could have about whether Shakespeare really represents us or not. And some people will definitely disagree. And I get that. Because again, it, it's written by a white man, and it's about white stories. However, I've always accessed Shakespeare from the language perspective for myself. I'm a language-based person. So this is yeah. essentially a different language. It really is. Yeah, the, the words mean something different from what they do today. They're written differently. They're in a different cadence. They're a different meter, etc. 
And learning that pattern, those patterns and those rhythms is like unlocking a puzzle for myself. And that's really my interest in languages is unlocking the puzzles of another language. That's how I access it. And I will admit fully, for example, I'm thinking of John of Gaunt, his speech in Richard II, where he says, you know, this, this England, this happy realm, he, he does an entire monologue about how great England is. And here I am, a South Asian woman being like, um, excuse me, I hate England colonizers. But, but Yeah, and at the time that it was written, I but mean, there is definitely that sense of, we are our own little world, you know, we are perfect. And, you know, and absolutely, there, there is so much material there to criticize. And I get that. But I think the language has always inspired me to see it for what it is. It is a, a speech that is extolling your land. And if, for example, you can think of your own land, whether that's India, whether that's the US, whether that's something in your heart, something so profound and beautiful, it doesn't have to be England. <laughs> it can be something much closer to your heart. So I think that's where I access it. And I had exposure to Shakespeare from a young age, even before I started acting. I, I want to inspire people of color who have always felt, whether intimidated or whether turned off by Shakespeare, I wanted to inspire them to sort of explore these texts and find how to make it their own. For example, mm -hmm. I just did an amazing Beyond Workshop series with Revolution Latina, which is a, a New York-based company. And they had a Shakespeare workshop where a lot of wonderful actors and actors and movers were interpreting Shakespeare through movement and gesture and and language, but it and but even using Spanish, using English, Spanish, French, any language that they knew, even Greek to to speak. And it was just so cool because it opened the world of Shakespeare up to today's society. And I think if we can find more ways to access Shakespeare that way it stops being this white person's thing and it starts being this new world that we get to explore together. And I think that's so true about the way in which you are taught the text too, because I think for me, when I first you know, encountered Shakespeare, it was in a high school English classroom setting. I felt like I was going into it being told like, oh, this is really hard and you're never going to understand it and all of these things. And so I approached it just already with like a defense up. Mm -hmm. And so going into acting school when we had our like Shakespeare unit, I was just like, oh, I know this is going to be terrible for me and I'm just going to brush it off and not pay attention. Well, not not pay attention, but I just like you knew I was not going to do my best work and I sort of set myself up in some ways for failure for that. But it was a my my teachers were incredible because they just made it feel way more accessible in a way that I never thought. And I ended up like we, you know, in our showcase, part of it was doing a Shakespeare monologue and it was optional. And by the end I decided I did want to do my Shakespeare monologue in our showcase. And that was a huge hurdle. So I think what you said about like accessing it from the language perspective and making it your own, I that was such a huge shift for me. That's so great. I'm I'm so glad. And I think that, you know, Shakespeare at the heart of it, I personally don't think Shakespeare should be taught behind a, you know, at a classroom table or anything like that. I think it should, I think we need to stand up and do it because it's about raw emotions. It's about jealousy and rage and, and deep love and excitement and all the things that we experience as humans. It just happens to be in another language. So that rawness is what we can access as actors. And so I always think that it should be done. Shakespeare always needs to be done <laughs> actively. Yeah, I 
couldn't agree more. Also, just because like, I feel like I would watch it and I could understand what they were saying, but I would read it and be like, this is gibberish. Right. Because you need someone to put that life into it. Exactly. While you were in Chicago, how did you find an artistic community? Did you have mentors that were helping you along the way? Because I feel like that artistic community is another one of those things that when it comes to being an actor is so, so important. I was very fortunate in that I had many mentors along the way who helped me, some of whom I'm you know, still seeking mentorship from other people who, you know, we've parted our ways, but they helped me while while we were in touch. And that was really wonderful. In terms of building an artistic community, I would say that my artistic community spans far outside of Chicago. I've been an artist who really takes my artistic fodder, I guess, from areas of my life that are not just acting. So dance and, you know, just the the friends that I have outside of acting. Were you ever able to work together with your artistic friends who were involved in entertainment to put up a play together or, you know, film something together and make your own work and find that agency in that way? My work was mainly solo work. Like I did my, I wrote two one woman shows and I didn't necessarily make those with my fellow actors, but I ended up connecting with Silk Road Rising for Hollow Wave when it had its full-length production. And that was kind of a wonderful artistic community that I that I got. And then perhaps for whatever reason, my own artistic interests were mainly to tell my story at the time. So it was really more solo-based stuff. Now, however, ironically, maybe living apart, living outside of Chicago, I have the time because of COVID to collaborate with people virtually, and we are creating things together. So in that way, it almost unexpectedly happened, just not when I, just not when I thought it would. So speaking of that solo work, where did you first get the idea for Hollow Wave, and how did you decide the format that it was going to be in? Because I feel like when we're thinking about you know telling our own story, there's so many ways it could go. It could be a web series, it could be a play with lots of other people. How did you decide on a one woman show? Hollow Wave was an expansion of a previous one woman show I I wrote. I can I swear. <laughs> Can I yeah, please. <laughs> uh, my, my first one woman show was called Where Is My Goddamn Coconut? It was a like a short form one woman show that I wrote back in 2015. Basically, I, my alter ego is a French mime who wears a purple wig and a beret and obviously talks because miming is her part time job. And she's named Annie Blatt, based, which is essentially the Joanne fabrics of France. Annie Blatt also sounds like the anglicized version of your name. That's exactly it. I When yeah. I was studying abroad <laughs> in France, I saw this shop and I was like, this is how the French people would say my name. Let's take a picture. And that's kind of what inspired it. Absolutely. That show was kind of a kind of surface exploration of mental health awareness, which is what I had been focusing on um, after my experiences in grad school. And Hollow Wave was basically an expansion of that. So that's where the inspiration came from. When I say expansion, Silk Road Rising, when they commissioned me to write Hollow Wave and asked me to expand it, I had to really think about the causes of my depression and really explore that in detail. And so I took an acting, I'm sorry, a a writing class with uh, a solo show writing class with Arlene Malinowski, who's a wonderful actor, writer, 
performer, teacher in Chicago. So I guess you would say that's where the inspiration came from. In terms of the form, well, theater was really my my forte at the time. I've done a, a good deal of on-camera work, but my, my real, I guess, after grad school and the amount of time I've spent performing on stage since I was a kid is really kind of the live performance aspect. I'm one of those people that just creates as you learn. So now that I'm learning more about writing short films, here I am creating short films. But at the time, I, I knew how to write a, a show, theater show. So that's that's kind of where that came from. How did you go about getting it produced and putting it up and getting it seen by people? Silk Road Rising had a solo series that had already been established in previous years. So right now we're at we're about 2017 in terms of time, 2016, 2017. They had already featured Pooja, for example. Pooja had her oh, yeah. solo show in the solo series and some other wonderful one-woman shows in that series. I had seen that series and thought, I would love to be part of this. So I communicated with Silk Road. Silk Road was also the place where I first understudied. So I had a relationship with them. And they were incredibly generous. It, it, it was interesting because they were actually changing their programming at the time. So the solo series was actually going away. But what they did offer me was, we'll offer you workshops just so you can write this show. We don't know if it's going to end up in a production, but we'll give you the space and the time to do it, which was incredibly generous. And so I I started writing. But in terms of production, they actually ended up offering me the end of the season to perform the show in 2018. And that's kind of how I got the first round of of people to see it. They gave me eight performances. But going forward after that, again, it's it's really kind of making connections in places you wouldn't expect. For example, the Kata, which is the Consortium of Asian American Theaters and Associations, they had a summit in Chicago in August of 2018. I connected with somebody there who ended up bringing me out to UC Santa Cruz. Minita Gandhi, who is another solo show performer and actor who's now in LA, she had also recommended me for that. So again, it's people helping each other. And then the final time where I got Wave seen was at uh, the United Solo Theater Festival in New York, which was an off-Broadway production. That's one where I just applied and filled in the application. But mainly it was really people from your past who have done these things, they end up recommending you for something. And then something happens several years later. And it's really just, I mean, it goes back to what we, when we see other people and we say, oh, they're, they're so successful. We're really just seeing the tip of the iceberg. We're not seeing yeah the years it took to build up we're also not you know we might see a movie come out and we might say oh they you know i'm saying this from my own perspective i'm not saying everybody does this but i know i've done this where i say oh how they're 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 on a roll how come but they i didn't know that that movie took seven years to make and you know they never thought it, it was going to be big but all of a sudden it is so i think we're just Things happen unexpectedly and the timeline is all weird. Oh, you're so, I, I love what you said about we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg because I feel like, you know, someone will get big or they'll become like a series regular or something and it makes it seem like that is not easy to do, but it just seems like it happened overnight. And it's like, you have no idea probably the amount of work that went into that. Maybe it is overnight, who knows? But yeah, we're we're really not seeing that. And that was also a lot of why I wanted to even do this podcast because I was like, I want to talk about the the part of the iceberg that is submerged yes. so we can all the, learn more about yeah, it. The, the big iceberg, yes. What does the title Hollow Wave mean? Hollow Wave comes from a poem by Swami Vivekananda. And uh, it's a very special poem that I feature throughout the show which is uh, hold on, get a while, brave heart. It's a 
it's a poem about continuing through the dark tunnel, even when you don't see the light at the end. And there's a line, each hollow crests the wave. The, the verse goes, no winter was, no winter was, but summer came behind. Each hollow crests the wave. They push each other into light and shade. Be steady, then the brave. And it's that idea that the hollow is basically what I have seen in my life as a void or a lack, constant black hole that I'm always trying to fill. And the wave is perhaps the moments of euphoria, those exciting moments of success. But they, they're just constantly one after the other, one after the other. And if you start seeing that pattern, you start not buying into the pattern so much, right? You're not always at a high and then a low and then a high and then a low. And you're really not answerable to those random events. It's kind of like you're just observing things. So hollow wave is really the up and down of life and learning to step back from it and understand that one, it's a pattern and two, you can be somebody outside of those events and find contentment outside of that up and down. Wow, that's beautiful. I have to think about that in terms of the stepping back. When you're in a hollow, knowing that that wave is going to come and knowing that that pattern exists helps you remove yourself from it. Yeah. Is that kind of... I mean, it's that same idea of impermanence that we... I think a lot of people who are, whether it's into you know astrology or whether into manifesting or any kind of spiritual practice or simply just the artist's way writing, you know, writing about stuff and 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 doing that kind of thing. It's that same idea of what's that line? The the biggest constant is change. And so if we realize that, then we can survive these moments, I think, a little better. Now that you're in San Diego, do you hope that, you know, post pandemic, you can keep performing Hollow Wave? Or do you feel like maybe there's a different afterlife for the show? I think I want to adapt Hollow Wave to the screen. And I want to make a, a film version of it now. I would like to keep performing it live. But now that I'm getting more into writing, script writing, I guess you could say, I'd like to work on adapting it for camera. So I think that's its next, its next outlet. I was hoping you would say you might be adapting it to the screen. So I'm glad to hear that. And now that you're getting into that screenwriting, is Autocorrect the first short film that you've written and produced? Yes, it is the first one. Okay, I had so much fun watching it. I just wanted to know how you filmed it because you play both characters. And as I was watching, I was like, there is not a single lag. There is not a single delay. You are wa you are like listening and watching yourself. So for anyone who hasn't seen Autocorrect, it is, do you, actually, do you want to tell, do you want to describe it a little bit? Sure. Autocorrect is the first, this first short film that I wrote, produced, acted in. And it was made through the BGB studio, but I adapted it into a solo version. So I actually have two versions. I've got a, a version that was made oh. through, through the, the class, which has another wonderful actor playing the other role. But I adapted it into a solo version as well for the Lifeline. Uh, Lifeline is a theater in Chicago. They had a virtual storytelling festival. So I adapted it into, <laughs> into a second version, which is incredibly ambitious. And it worked out really well, I'm excited to say. It's great, yeah. <laughs> I, again, I couldn't have done this by myself. So I had a, a co-director, Priyanka Shetty, who's also a solo performer. She lives in Philly now. An actor friend of mine, Deepa Patel, helped me read essentially my character Unsu's lines while I acted the other character, Laura. 
so we were filming it that way. And then my, you know, I had a wonderful editor, Ryan March, who helped me immensely to put everything together and make it really nice. I had to figure out split screen, um, <laughs> split screen editing on, on iMovie, which was not only was I using iMovie, but I was learning Final Cut Pro by the seat of my pants, being like, I don't even know how to do this, someone help. And my acting, my editing friend, Ryan, helped me out immensely to make it look really good. So autocorrect is basically about this actor named Ansu, who has a conversation with a director after a rehearsal, trying to politely point out that the director has been mispronouncing her name consistently. It turns into Ansu really finding her voice and speaking out the way she really wants to about how she feels when somebody mispronounces her name and essentially erases what she considers her identity. And it takes a turn, which I really love, but it's kind of, I describe it like a fever dream. It's basically a, a South Asian person's fever dream of how they would like to address people when people dismiss them about <laughs> name correction. Yeah. And it's a compilation of many, many experiences I've had in my life. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. And I loved, I mean, it's, it's, it's poignant and it's funny at the same time. Like you had this one line where you said, how come you can pronounce like Dostoevsky and Tchaikovsky and you can't say my name? Right. And that, oh, that really resonated with me because I was just like, people really like to sit on their high horse about being able to pronounce all of those names correctly, but do not care at all when it comes to South Asian or Asian names. Nope. And I was curious to know if it was based on a real experience. And when you have encountered those, I mean, of course, most South Asian people have encountered a situation where someone pronounces our name wrong. But I was wondering if there was a situation in terms of being part of a, a show or a theater process where you were the only actor of color in the room and felt like you had to take on a lot of burden in terms of being the voice for all BIPOC and how you navigated that kind of situation. Let me, let me, I guess, start from grad school. So with grad school being the only person of color in the room, I think it, it really, it taught me a lot, for lack of a better word, about representation or lack thereof. In terms of Chicago theater, it is based on one specific experience. But I would, oh, I, yeah. would, I would say that it's really based on a compilation. I mean, in terms of being the only person of color in the room, I've been fortunate in that that hasn't happened every single time in the sense that I often am the only South Asian person in the room, but not necessarily the only person of color in the room. But even then, in terms of my experiences, it is, again, oftentimes needing to be the only person with a non-Western name and therefore somehow having to constantly prove myself or validate or not feel like I'm burdening everyone too much by correcting them. How did you react to and navigate those situations? Were you able to find that kind of, because like you said, this autocorrect is like how we all hope that we could respond. Yeah. But were you ever able to to do that in real life? Because, you know, it's difficult because as actors, and this goes back to what you were saying about agency, it feels like we have to say yes to every situation and we have to be compliant and obedient or the opportunity is going to slip through our fingers. So how do you navigate those situations with, you know, potential gatekeepers who are white to stand up and use your voice, but also not potentially not potentially sabotage your own opportunities. Well, that's the that's the tightrope we all seem to be walking right now. When when we're talking about sabotaging, that's that's the the irony of the situation is that why should we sabotage by having you actually pronounce my name 
the way I wanted to be pronounced. How is that? How is that reason for sabotage? Right. The only reason I'm getting upset about it is because you are not listening to me, or you are refusing to admit that you have any part in this. So the irony is that somebody would sabotage their own career by just being honest with themselves. I think that is the biggest problem that I have with with this kind of situation. In terms of navigating it, I'm still learning because. Again, based on what you said, I know that losing my temper doesn't actually really change. In fact, a lot of people will just shut down if I lose my temper. And yet if I smile and I'm a little apologetic about it, then it doesn't seem to be as as grave of an issue for people. So I'm still learning how to speak directly and unapologetically about it. I have not gone off on someone the way that I that Unsu does in autocorrect even though I have wanted to countless times. Oh yeah. So so I guess to answer your question, I don't have a clear answer. I can just recognize more and more that that we are walking a tightrope and that the more that we can acknowledge to ourselves that it we need to say something for my I need to say something for myself. And if that means I'm going to get fired, that's fine, but at least I stood up for myself. I think that's kind of where I come from. Yes, it's taking a risk, but at the end of the day, you are the person to live with yourself and if you are happy with yourself, then I think that means you've you've succeeded. Also, I think at the same time we're having more conversations about this in 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 public and people are becoming more aware about South Asian names. But I think with certain people who refuse to sort of listen, they are often are the exact people who tell themselves that they are the wokest people in the room. So that really bothers me because it's like, you're clearly hypocritical on, on a bigger scale. When I think about this kind of issue, it really comes from the fact that South Asians are still considered immigrants in this country. And the majority of our generation was born here. So the fact that I think people still consider the names as foreign because the people are considered foreign and how are you still speaking English so well? I mean, you must have grown up somewhere else. That kind of mentality is what I think really needs to change before the names can be accepted as normal and normalized. It's, it's so true. There's no divisive answer of when you encounter the situation, this is how you respond. I, I resonated with what you said about not being apologetic about it because I think whenever I have to correct someone about something, I'm like, no, it's probably I told you know I told you to say it that way and I didn't correct you or it's it's easy to take the blame on ourselves. Yeah, it, again, it's it's hard because I have gotten gaslit a lot for not telling somebody the way that they needed to hear. Back to what we talked about earlier, taking it on ourselves, that kind of blame. I'm tired of it. I'm I'm really tired of taking that weight again on myself to say now I have to manage your feelings when you are essentially erasing what is important to me and what it I mean if we are going to be more we are going to be more conscious about pronouns, right? We're going to be more conscious about respecting people and their identities well then why can't south asian names be part of that movement <laughs> i mean they are easier than a lot of anglo you know english names to pronounce when you just look at them on the page right but that's just my thought <laughs> <laughs> the other big question that i have for you is what advice do you have when it comes to building a long lasting career because you know you've been acting and working for about a decade and it, you are continuing to put out new content and learn uh, as the industry continues to change. And that 
that for me is like such an incredible reminder of the longevity of this career. So what advice do you have to just make it long lasting rather than getting to those situations where we get frustrated and are just like want to quit? I have dealt with so much <laughs> burnout that I, I really like this question because I've thought about it a lot. I am the kind of person that really likes to get to the heart of the situation and, and hope that my talking about it really openly and in a very kind of blunt way will help people. What I what I want to say about that is I have operated from a scarcity mindset for so many years. I have always compared myself to other people and their careers and said, why am I not there? And I've constantly beaten my own success or whatever you might call it down because it's not enough. It's not enough. It should be somewhere else. That kind of not only the comparison game, but the the what I describe as the stranglehold on the idea of success at least held me back from actually being exploratory and creative. And this past year, year and a half that I've been back has helped me to connect to a to a higher purpose, to a to a larger purpose that I have, which is to connect with people. And that is my impact and my purpose. So I would say to other people who feel burned out, who feel discouraged, who feel like there's no representation for South Asians, find what makes you feel like you have a deeper purpose in your art. So if the if you're going on auditions and you don't really feel connected to what you're doing, well, what's the higher purpose there? Are you connecting to people? Are you trying to help people? Are you trying to share your story for a for a better purpose or a, or a kind of long-term reason? If you can find that motivation and that purpose, I think it'll help to take away some of that strain for I need to make myself successful now. Because at the end of the day, we don't really have control over it. We, we can work as hard as we can, and we may still not book that thing because of the fact that the industry is still very slow in opening itself up to people who look like us, especially women of color. So in that way, start writing your own stuff. That's the For me, that's the way I got agency. And if mm -hmm. that isn't the way that it looks for you, expand your worldview and start doing things that you haven't given yourself time to do. For example, creativity as an actor doesn't only have to be learning lines or writing stories. It can be playing the guitar. It can be coloring in a coloring book. It could be doing cartwheels out in the garden. Everything relates to making yourself a fully fledged person. So if you can acknowledge that it's a long game and that what we're really doing is building up the iceberg, we're not just looking at the tip of our own iceberg, we're, we're looking at the whole thing, then I think it takes away that sense of the timeline. Because I think a lot of South Asians have a timeline, right? I'm supposed to be here. I mean, I expected at the end of 10 years to be a star in Hollywood in a feature film with Leonardo DiCaprio. Like that was what I wanted. And that is that has changed because because I was doing that based on what I thought I should be doing at that time. But now, I guess kind of thanks to COVID, I'm doing something completely different. I'm writing short films and I'm telling stories that I think people will really resonate with. So I've given up a little bit of the timeline. Of course, I do wish that I made loads of money and that I was walking the red carpet. I, you know, I, I still kind of wish that, but I don't know that that's in my cards. But if I'm more connected to myself now, then I would be walking the red carpet and not knowing what the hell I was doing or where my life was going, then 
maybe this is the better one for me. The timeline thing is so real, especially, you know, in South Asian culture, it's like, okay, I got to get, I have to have my first house by 28 and get married by 27 and have kids at this time because it just feels like when, for me, I look around at people in my community, it feels like there's a very specific time and track to get all of those things done. And it can be very difficult. And like we compare ourselves to other actors and then we also compare ourselves to people in different industries who have a totally different life. And it's just like the constant comparison on both ends is very tiresome. So I love what you said about letting go of that timeline. And it's hard. It's, it's again, just letting go of the timeline is a lifelong marathon of, of unlearning some of the things we've, because like you said, it's not just I mean, specifically as a South Asian woman, I'm comparing myself to the fact that people in my family are doctors and uh, and uh, not only higher earners, but but the respected professions of the world. Acting is not considered respected because it's, yeah, you're very creative and that's great. But unless you're, you know, that one percent, is it really dependable? Well, no. <laughs> but if I can accept the fact that this is the way that I express myself, and I may have to work another job to do it, but at least I'm still maintaining that connection to myself. I, I have to sort of shut out some of that other those other voices that I that that come every single day to remind me somehow that I'm not good enough. I have to say, no, I am, I am. I'm just I'm just doing an unconventional thing. That's all. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. It was so wonderful to talk to you. And I feel like I'm just like soaking up so much wisdom from you. And also just I throughout our conversation, I just feel like I've, I've noticed so many similarities in myself with what you were talking about. And so I just I really appreciate your honesty and advice. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about this stuff, talk with you. And thank you so much. And that was The Brown Breakdown. Thank you for listening and a huge thank you to Anu for coming on and sharing her honest experience. If you're interested in watching Autocorrect or more of Hollow Wave, you can go to www.anubhatt.com. That's A-N-U-B-H-A-T-T.com. And you can follow her creative journey on Instagram at I am Anubhatt. As always, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me on Instagram at Brown Breakdown. And I'll see you next time.